Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruski, and I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action. And welcome to another beautiful, sunny, warm summer day from Wisconsin. We have our full panel, which means Rebecca Lynch from Wisconsin Working Families Party is with us. Rebecca, good to see you. Good to be here, Matt. And Robert Craig, Executive Director here at Citizen Action, is with us. Robert. Good morning, everyone. So we are going to talk about the state budget. But before we do that, um, we record Thursday mornings, and, and basically as we're recording, we are finding out that the United States Supreme Court is uh, starting to release its, some of its major decisions that it's been sort of holding on. This is the traditional time of year when we get some of the bigger cases. Um, and so we haven't had a chance to look at them all, but something that we did see that broke was that they are not going to entertain the partisan gerrymandering in Maryland and I believe also North Carolina. Um, and we thought it was worth briefly talking about this because we think it defines to what we just experienced with the state budget process and a completely gerrymandered legislature on particularly as it relates to some of Governor Evers, let's just say, very basic and simple requests for different changes in policy that were essentially rejected. Rebecca, I know you've got it in front of you. Any latest just basic information on essentially what we're talking about with the U.S. Supreme Court on, on this gerrymandering? Yeah, so, you know, this was a very partisan vote. So the, you know, 5-4, the conservative side of the court, um, ruling against doing something about partisan gerrymandering. Uh, and, you know, I think there's like a couple interesting things here. Um, one was a note, and I won't read the quote, but a note from the dissent that Elena K Justice Elena Kagan issued. Um, and basically what she responds to is the conservative majority says, well, we can't do anything about partisan gerrymandering because there's no precise and like, you know, judicially workable way to do so. Um, and what she's responding is that like, hey, this is for the first, actually, maybe I will read the quote. For the first time in this nation's history, the majority declares that it can do nothing about an acknowledged constitutional violation because it has searched high and low and cannot find a workable legal standard to apply. So, you know, what Justice Kagan is saying is that the majority of the court is like, oh, we see that the, the Constitution is being violated, but we can't do anything about it because we can't figure out how. So that's that. Um, I don't know, Robert, if you had any thoughts about that. I'm just thinking through how, and it sort of reminds me of how the banks got away with the greatest theft in, in world history in the, in, in the financial collapse because the mortgage-backed securities were, were theft, I mean, were fraudulent in every which way. They had no title, legitimate title on most of the homes they foreclosed on, right? Um, how those in power, the law doesn't matter, right? So if you're a low-level criminal defendant, no court's going to say, well, you know, we're going to, we're, we're, we're just not going to bother to do this because we can't figure out a workable standard, right? And therefore, a constitutional right doesn't matter. Do you see what I mean? So it's really bizarrely convenient, isn't it? And it's at the heart of conservatism because conservatism is about justifying unaccountable, I would say, quasi-authoritarian power. And so we're seeing it in the state right now. I mean, we have a distorted budget process because the state assembly has a gigantic supermajority Republican, despite the fact that most voters in the last election voted Democratic in state assembly races. 
And that's why we can't back uh, Robin Voss down because he has a, a completely legitimate majority. And for, I mean, this just, there can be nothing more fundamental in the United States than, than the basic principles of democracy. And the idea that why do we have an independent judiciary then? Why, in fact, do we even outsource any decisions to them because, at all, given this? I mean, because, quite frankly, it was not conceived this way by the founding fathers. They did not, and, and unfortunately, they were mothers, but they weren't given official authority as well, um, that they did not decide the Supreme Court was supreme over interpreting the Constitution. In fact, the British precedent was is that the President and Congress also interpreted the Constitution. That's what Parliament does. So this has gotten absurd, and these are politicians in robes, and they don't want to have one person, one vote. So, obviously, Robert, you've made this transition, as rightly so. There'll be more, obviously, decisions coming down from the court. We'll talk more about those at another time, but this obviously plays out now in the state legislature. So we've this week, we witnessed essentially the Joint Finance Committee budget, along with one very important Tesla change, <laughs> um, essentially go through both the Assembly and the Senate. A couple, We had a couple of Republicans for fiscally conservative reasons, which we talked about last week, Bolt, but they had the votes that they needed um, because of because of this gerrymandering. And I want to first, before we get into the details, thank all of the Citizen Action members and allies and activists who got involved in the Badger Care Day of Action all around the state. Good pressure, right? Like, this issue still is very popular, and they, we need to make sure that these folks pay a price for their vote. But uh, we had a lot of folks come out at the Capitol. It is worth noting, and this gets back to the gerrymandering, we talked to enough Senate Republicans who basically told us they want to accept the Medicaid money in various forms, but absolutely said that there's no way that they would vote against the budget because of where the leadership is. When Voss says, over my dead body, it sends very clear signals about what's, what's possible to happen. Um, and we heard that. We heard that from... Uh, from from Senate Republican leaders, right, or Senate Republican uh, uh, folks, Senator. yeah, and and so it's very frustrating. They have a budget process where we know if we could just get a clean vote on on Medicaid expansion, there's enough support in the legislature. But the leadership, because of gerrymandering, has so much control um, over their members, and particularly Voss Fitzgerald a would lose his caucus. If there could be a real conversation and a real negotiation, this is a problem for Governor Evers, uh, since I think he should use his veto as leverage to force negotiation because they've refused to even talk to him in a legitimate way. The problem is Voss can just say no to everything because he has this illegitimate supermajority uh, behind him. And so if you're a Republican senator, I, I, this is unfortunate, this is something that upsets people about politicians, why take a vote that is against your own party if it doesn't matter, because you can't win anyway? I mean, that, that's the calculation in front of them. So this distorts the whole democratic process, and we're, we're likely not to get a budget that reflects the actual interests or will of the people for that. And this is supposed to be the whole reason for all of this. Why do we have elected representatives? Because it's supposed to in some way reflect the public and be democratic and therefore be legitimate. And if it's not legitimate, then it has, it, it, then quite frankly, it doesn't have the authority of democracy and it's something other than, than a democratic value and, 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 a, and a democratic functioning. So, Rebecca, 
Okay, so we're it's in Evers Court. We started to talk about this last week as options. What do you, I mean, what are your thoughts as to the best next steps for Evers to try and somehow wrangle out a, a negotiation or something that could lead or uh, lead to maybe getting Medicaid or some other things? Um, or is this, are we past that and this whole thing needs to be vetoed and we're already deeply in political uh, territory, 2020 election, essentially. Oh, man, far be it for me to, you know, <laughs> advise Governor Evers. I mean, I, I think... That's what we do here. Yeah, let let me tell you something. That's what we do here. <laughs> Suddenly now we have no opinions for the governor. No, come on, let's get us rolling. Pundits are about unaccountable opinions. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> uh, even, even I had to have some humility. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, the... The power here is in public perception, and that's the real trick, you know. And I think, you know, in a, in a different era, you know, this would be about statesmanship and bringing people together, and you know, I'll, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln, President Lincoln, and like, you know, his efforts to pass a constitutional amendment. Like that era is gone, right? We don't live in that era anymore. And I think, you know, especially when it comes to budgets, you know, it's a really tricky dance. Um, with public perception. And I think, you know, the, the challenge for Governor Evers is how to stay strong and at least on the, on the core principles of his budget, the core things that he wants to accomplish while not getting um, really harmed by, you know, the missives that'll come from Voss and from others and Americans for Prosperity and whoever else that he is, you know, tax and spend, that he can't pass a budget on time, yada, yada, yada. I mean, how do we make sure that the people of Wisconsin understand who is responsible for this logjam? So it reminds me a bit of the choice that the House Democrats have in regard to impeachment. Uh, you can not do it if you have a political calculation, which Nancy Pelosi may or may not have, uh, that it's just bad politics and so I'm not going to do it. But then you're essentially granting the president the power to be completely unaccountable and to literally work with a foreign power to win an election. <laughs> Which is what the Mueller report says. It just says there wasn't the elements of a provable criminal conspiracy to do so, where they had a quid pro quo plan between the between each party, the Russians and the Trump campaign. And so, in this case, if you don't do this, then you are saying Robin Voss is governor. Okay. Yeah, I mean, just in a couple seconds before we wrap up, you know, I think budgets at their best. Um, uh, but budgets are always necessarily like a brokered agreement, either between branches or in divided government between parties that are representative of different branches. But there's no opportunity for a brokered agreement here. So I'm not sure that he can get through like Medicare for all, a badger care for all and, and just like get rid of a few other pieces. I don't think that's an option. We're going to talk more about this after the break. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. We're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground, Wisconsin. We're talking about the state budget. We started the conversation actually by mentioning the U.S. Supreme Court decision that looks like we're going to continue to have gerrymandering, or at least it's going to go unchecked, um, and how that is defining this state legislative fight and the power of Robin Voss and and how that puts Evers in a tricky position. And, and before the break, Rebecca was just saying, right, like this is really challenging for the governor because it's about public perception and that is not something you can necessarily totally peg. I mean, look, it's 
it seems to me, and, and this is where we're in a tight spot, we don't fully understand what possibilities there are in that line item veto to make the changes. Robert apparently believes he has a few. So we'll go to Robert. Robert raised his hand. <laughs> Robert raised his hand. He's, <laughs> he's like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I got some smart ideas. Robert, uh, it takes. so I, wanna, I wanted to get to that, essentially to that conversation. Like, what could some of those possibilities be? And starting also from the premise on education, right? Like, there's a lot of money there for education, but it's not the kind of money that will keep people who care deeply about education happy. And a number of them have already started calling for a full veto, which is interesting. So, Robert. So you, you raised several issues, where public opinion is, what's the power of the veto, right? Um, which parts to veto if you veto. So first of all, just in terms of the power of the veto, uh, Robin Voss, with her own money, hired a whole team of experts who have tried to write the budget in a way that it's hard to veto. Cannot. So using the word, you're allowed to, to, to uh, in, under current interpretation of the Wisconsin Constitution, as amended in 2008, I believe, to strike out whole words but not parts of words. Before that, you could do parts of words. So uh, you could have taken out a not if not is a single word. But if you say everything's a cannot, <laughs> then you can't take you it out. cannot right. take it out. Exactly. And so th it's things like that. And so it's going to be harder to do precision surgical vetoes, though I'm sure the governor and his staff are going through and have their own, uh, th their own experts to figure out what can be vetoed. So there's that question. Okay, As far as where public opinion is, look, we know public opinion is for spending more money in education, and they're certainly for taking the, the Badger Care expansion money by 70%. We also know that they think that uh, Tony Evers is the collaborative one and that it's the legislature that is not. And that was cemented in the public mind by the lame duck. So he has some working capital, okay? So how would, how would you approach this? I think you can still approach it surgically in the sense that you can take out some parts of the budget, not others, but you have to take out whole parts. So the one that comes obvious to, obviously to mind is you could take out the entire Medicaid budget. Okay, now why the entire Medicaid budget? because the additional money you can generate with a Medicaid expansion was being used in Tony's budget, governor's budget, uh, to make other health care investments. So take it all out, uh, and then is, is what you can do. On education, there's a little bit of a problem. And by the way, the hospitals will scream, but they've tried to play both sides, and they deserve no deference in this process, because actually, as alleged nonprofits, they should be fighting to cover people with affordable health care. That's what they pretend they care about in their ads, but perhaps not. I think they care about something else. Uh, just, a, just a thought. And so on education, the problem is budgeting by school boards. And I really don't know. I know where activists are, but I don't know where the people who think a lot about education are on whether you take the risk of having, as what Chris Larson calls the Walker zombie budget, uh, the previous budget, get imposed on the schools when they have to constitutionally create a budget process and have a budget finished by the end of the year and start all of their projections in the summer for, for fall process. Uh, but at least Medicaid, and here's the next part of it, and I said this last week, he should then force them to the table because Robin Voss is threatening to go home till October and take everyone home. And so what he should do is immediately say, if it's just Medicaid or whatever else he also vetoes, uh, he should say, I want to start a conference with Mr. Fitzgerald and Voss immediately to work out a budget between us. That's what the public wants. 
and I'm calling meetings, and I'm going to, and by the way, he should then say they're going to be in the governor's big con public conference room, which is a big glorious room just off the east wing of the Capitol, that's very public, and he can say, literally, I'm going to go and sit there at 10 a.m. every day and wait for you to negotiate, and actually do it every day until they come, come back uh, from their recess. So, Rebecca, any further thoughts on... Uh after hearing that on wh what you think, uh, where we're headed. I, I just think it's really easy, uh, interesting, the language that Republicans have been using. So uh, I think it was Alberta Darling who's been calling this <laughs> a people's budget, the Republican yeah. budget. Uh -huh. Which people? <laughs> yeah, and, and saying it's a middle ground when, of course, it's it's no such thing. So, you know, I think, I, again, it comes goes back to what I said earlier, right? They are They are playing a game of you know a battle for public perception who seems the most reasonable and the the least who who is not the the party responsible for not having an on-time budget not having you know a brokered agreement and so that's the tussle right now um but i also agree with like everything that robert said i think it's like really interesting especially around um bad you know around healthcare. and i think you know i would just add to that that i don't think i don't think that the conferencing alone would do it that I think there needs to be like a, you know, coordinated, passionate push by people around the state who care about this to like keep this at the forefront while that conferencing is going on. I'm taking that for granted. I'm saying that <laughs> oh, you don't, oh. but we don't just stay in the current mode, right? Obviously that has to happen to put pressure on the process where we're trying to put pressure on a group of people who are not susceptible to any democratic pressure because Robin Voss holds all the cards. And so state senate may be willing, and all these state senators who want to take the badger care money might be willing to just allow Robin Voss to be governor two and a half years early from his projection of becoming governor. Governor Evers should not allow that to happen. One of the things, I mean, <clears throat> what, what, you're really tr what Evers has to figure out is how do you bring these... Republican senators, particularly, and I'm sure there's folks in the assembly who feel the same way, um, but it starts there into the conversation where, like, they're feeling the pressure to, like, sort of clean decisions on Medicaid, right? Because they've, they've sort of tried to take these positions that they're for it, but it's not workable. And you've got to kind of call them out because ultimately, these are the folks that. If, if this goes political and we end up with the Walker zombie budget or whatever, that like these are the people that need to be removed, right? So there has to be some further like clarification. They need to be put out and Va it goes after Voss's power because the reality is there are enough votes uh, on for Medicaid expansion. It's just there, there's not, never going to be that vote if, if Evers can't figure out a way through this budget process to have that negotiation. Let me say one other quick thing, because we've talked about, and Rebecca rightly brought up, the pressure that needs to come from grassroots folks. Everyone listen to this needs to be heavily involved if the governor takes a bold stand on parts of the budget. Uh, the interests right now, like the hospitals, uh, like a lot of the, 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 the school administrators who just want their money, is probably the pressures on Evers just to take the deal. It's just like, this is the best we can get, we want our money. As soon as Evers says, I ain't budging and they have to come negotiate with me, then the hospitals, then the schools, if you include education, then others are like, oh, my God, this is terrible. We're getting the Walker zombie budget. Do something, Robin Voss. Go and meet with the governor. So and you change the dynamic. 
And I would just say on top of that, you know, yes, the grassroots, but, you know, I, I guess I, I was talking about more than that, right? Like, I think every single Democratic state um, legislator in the Assembly and Senate needs to be working their district nonstop in a like, coordinated way around a priority issue. I would imagine that would be healthcare with, like, a set of, like, talking points with, like, you know, information with like vigor, right? Like this is like state, you know, state fair, farmers markets, like people are out, like they just need to like be put to work. And I don't think that that imperative has really been set for a long time. And like, it's like m maybe outside of electoral campaigns and like everyone I think would need to be, in order for this to be successful, like everyone would need to get behind it. And I would just say that like, I don't envy Governor Evers is in a really tough position because every single day, and I know we're seeing in our organizations, people are getting snatched up by the national media and the presidential horse race and whatever President Trump is, has last been doing. We're losing volunteers, we're losing attention, and it's going to be really tough. So, But we need the governor to set up that context. Right. Okay. And so what do you have otherwise? What governorship do you have otherwise? Budget's the only bill that has to pass. So if he capitulates, then they've written the whole budget and their negotiations to find common ground that Alberta only talks about with each other, not with... Uh, not with the governor of the state of Wisconsin. They've had the lame duck laws that limit the, his, his administrative authorities dramatically. They won't pass anything he proposes and send it to his desk that's not part of the budget. So what, do you, what is the other caretaker governor if he capitulates to this? So we are going to wrap up this conversation on the state budget and do exactly what Rebecca was talking about. Do what everybody else's brain is Fruit doing. flies. <laughs> Pay attention. Well, I mean, Trump is obviously so critical that we have decided we're going to spend a lot more time than we normally would talking about presidential politics over the next year and a half, certainly as we head into the Democratic um, primaries next year. Um, and so part of that is after the break, we're going to talk a little bit about the debates, we're also going to talk a little bit about some of the stuff Trump's been up to, and then we are going to talk about Bernie Sanders. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin, where Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. And we, I want to turn our attention to uh, some federal issues. And Robert, I need to, uh, obviously, Rebecca, your thoughts too, but specifically, I think this is going to impact a lot of health care. And that is Trump is talking about, in his administration, a plan to redefine poverty. And if Trump gets his way, this redefinition could mean about uh, a million people would be disqualified for a lot of the um, social service programs that uh, we depend on. So I, apparently uh, po the poverty level is is too high right now, or the standard. Uh, there's too many people that aren't, that are living in poverty, and we need to change that number by changing the definition. Despite research that shows that people are making two to three times the poverty rate that was set in 1963 and doesn't include a lot of modern expenses, that people making two to three times often live in poverty and can't afford housing or food insecure, or housing insecure, etc. So it's this old chain CPI thing, just to be clear, that Paul Ryan used to push. And what it is is a recalculation of how they calculate the increase in the cost of living. So over time, it would dramatically reduce the number of people 
in poverty, quote unquote. We've seen this in the Medicaid expansion, BadgerCare expansion debate, where they say everyone in poverty is covered, so it's fine, right, in BadgerCare, as if everyone above, just above this 1963 determined poverty line is just fine and can buy healthcare on their own. So our friends at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities and their partner in Wisconsin as Kids Forward, our close allies, found that over 10 years it would force 300,000 children and pregnant women to lose health care. More than 250,000 adults would not be ACA eligible anymore under, under Medicaid expansion. 150,000 people who buy insurance on the marketplace would lose their, lose their subsidies. 100,000 children would be eligible for free or reduced school lunch. They don't need those, do they? And uh, 200,000 people would lose food stamp benefits. So it just, this is the heart of what conservatism is about. Uh, Trump wants to, I mean, quite frankly, he's flirting with another unnecessary war. That's fine, right? Record defense spending is all a good thing. Basically, having his cabinet loot the treasury is fine, but God forbid kids should get free and reduced school lunches and, and families and, and, and low-income individuals should get access to health care. So, obviously, this is part of the backdrop that's going on. We also, you know, the, the, this, the immigration and refugee situation going on our border is clearly at a, at a boiling point. And the debate started last night, and... Um, I know <clears throat> tonight there'll be more debates, but wanted to get some initial thoughts. I know our last discussion, we talked a bit about Elizabeth Warren, and there was some concern that this first debate kind of was, since it didn't have Biden and Sanders, was a bit unfair to Elizabeth Warren. Uh, uh, Rebecca, I want to start with you um, and get both of your thoughts on how do we think Elizabeth did as someone who we both agree is, we all agree is, right there behind Biden and competing with Sanders, who we'll talk about next. But your, your initial thoughts on Warren, and then we'll talk about some of the other folks uh, and, and their performance last night. Yeah, and I'm excited to talk about Bernie um, in a minute. But on the debate, I have to be honest, I caught like half of it and was so exhausted. But so did you get the front end? That's where <laughs> Elizabeth was mm -hmm. certainly shining. So I was permitted to speak. Yeah, yeah <laughs> I, got, I got the second half, and I did get to see her speak a couple times. Um, I thought she did well. I think other folks did well, too, that I'm, I could talk about. But I will say um, a part that stood out to me that I saw was uh, Senator Warren at the end. Yep. Uh, she was just so clearly moved to be on a presidential debate stage and like spoke about it in a way that was like um like had emotion but was like she was presented very well and like you know was articulate but um but there was this like emotion that was just so relatable like imagine if any of us were on a presidential debate stage how that would feel i mean it would just be like unbelievable and she you know spoke about it in her closing statement in the context of her family and i i could i i mean i can't imagine talking about my family and how I got from being raised by my parents to being at a presidential debate stage and not bawling. So it was very relatable um, and really moving. Uh, and generally, I thought she did well. One note I had was I thought it was interesting how the MSNBC, no, NBC, it was NBC, right? Didn't both. Was both, both NBC and MSNBC and, simulcast. And tele Telemundo. And oh, Telemundo. Okay, got yeah. it. Which is a part of an NBC Good point, network. Matt, yes. yep. How the networks and the DNC didn't choose to like... Um, even out the heights of the candidates, yeah, and I so that. like I, 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 multiple women pointed that out to me, like just my friends who texted me, and I thought that was really interesting. Um, but 
Yeah, I thought I thought Senator War was great, and I think other people were good too. But interested to hear what Robert thinks. Former Mayor De Blasio in Advantage, right? He's so tall. When I met him, I had a picture with me with him looming over me. I mean, and I'm six three. So, Robert, uh, quick, your thoughts on on Warren and in terms of being, uh, as one person said it, the uh, the college professor with a bunch of graduate students. <laughs> so, I mean. She had the problem that everyone in the debate had. There were 10, and they were all trying to yell and get attention. Some of them are not legitimate candidates for president, right? We had to listen to them. Uh, she did very, very well because she was succinct and clear about the cause of all problems and willing to name names. And so, and that's her, her you know, her, what she's good at, right, is to be crystal clear about how the power structure is rigged, the economy is rigged against average people. And it's really a simple message when you get down to it. And most politicians want to avoid it and talk about opportunity and progress and working together and other things like that. And so it cuts through very well, though she and Bernie have raised the standard, so there's more seeming populism. Um, Julian Castro had a breakout in that he argued passionately that we need to make crossing a border the kind of crime it used to be, a misdemeanor, not a felony. And, uh, and candidates who weren't willing to go that far, like Beto O'Rourke, were hammered uh, during the debate by Castro and by, and by others. And so he had been, because he's not that dynamic a speecher, speaker, kind of an afterthought in this race. He may have positioned himself uh, to get to at least the bottom of the upper tier. We'll see if polls move. And we don't know how many people watch this debate. At least Maybe it's out there, but I haven't seen that yet. Um, mm. And I was going to say that um, Booker did very well. I never know where to whether to believe Cory Booker, but he's an extremely effective debater, and he sounded extremely good, and he was combative. Elizabeth stayed out of the fray, which is probably a smart thing to do. The interesting thing is no one really attacked Biden, which a lot of the pundits, the national pundits had expected, but they kind of made a pinata out of Beto O'Rourke. Yes, they who did. Is, I was going to... LBJ didn't... It turned into well, a Well, who is known for having a bad... Uh, be, not being a good debater because he's Mr. Positive, uh, and he didn't do well in the debates against Cruz. It might have cost him that Senate race. And so, and, and I think you, I think Rebecca, you were telling me beforehand, you thought he looked very nervous because he probably knows he's not good, good at Bader. So he didn't know how to cope. And this is what he had the problem with Cruz when someone just says something uh, direct and cutting at him, right? Which is, in a way, a nice, a, nice, uh, a nice personal attribute in most of our lives, but not so much on the presidential debate stage. So, look, I, I thought Warren did great. And I actually thought, she took advantage. Well, first of all, they helped that they gave her a lot of questions early. So for a lot of people who just tuned in early and tuned out, she got that stage to herself. But I really thought, playing on what we talked about last week and what I want to talk about with Sanders, she was literally just going after and trying to pluck Sanders voters, like basically speaking to them and saying, look, okay, Medicare for all, I'm for it, right? One of the only hands, along with de Blasio, to go up on would you get rid of your, your private insurance, and then a forceful defense of Medicare for all or a public system, right? Which I, while still, I'll say this, not declaring that that's all she's for. She wouldn't be for something in the middle. So I think it really positioned her well to, to, to deliver some clarity to Sanders voters. You can trust me. I will take Bernie's message while still not being as purist as Bernie is, I think, on health care. So I think she did a brilliant job on that, along with what you said, Robert. So I, I do think she took full advantage while not having to, like, go strike at Biden or go. She definitely showed herself to be 
up to the line. Castro, totally agree. Booker also did Booker was great. Did extremely well. And on an issue that, like, let's be honest, we don't talk about it enough on the show. When we do, we always lament that we should talk more about gun control, right? And just the complete health crisis that that is. And he spoke forcefully. The other one other thing, Inslee, I know, is out. But, like, the ability to speak about climate change and to speak mm-hmm. about literally how much of our energy as a country it's going to take just to like get maybe maybe give us a chance uh it was really nice to hear somebody say that so that those are sort of my and a my number kinda... of the candidates on biggest threat to the world said climate change not yeah. a country yeah which is super interesting i was gonna say on single payer look she decided not to allow bernie to have the left pole right that she's going to embrace the medicare for all ban- uh, uh, brand which to the public is a big, very broad, amorphous brand. It's not single-payer necessary to most of the public. But she wasn't willing to take the bait that I'm not for getting rid of private insurance. I think she thinks it can't be done as quickly as Bernie does and wants a glide path to it where you actually get there, but you get, but you get there you know, in, 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 a more, in, in a more kind of deliberate way. Um, and so they have an actual disagreement, but to the most of the public, it's not going to matter. But it also sh- says, and this, I want Rebecca's thoughts on this after the break, and that is specifically going for the left base um, just trying to, to, to win that. It's almost like there's a progressive primary going on, and then there'll be a finalist to take on the mainline Democrats. So we got to go. We got to take a break. Uh, you're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin, where citizen action. When we come back, we're going to talk very specifically about Bernie Sanders. Welcome back to the Battleground Wisconsin, where citizen action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. So we are going to spend the last segment talking very specifically about Bernie Sanders, and we had a nice transition because we have sort of laid out this dynamic that there is a very sizable chunk of the Democratic primary that is behind both of these candidates, and a chunk that clearly could compete, if not beat Biden on its own, uh, if one of the others. So, you mean um, Bernie and Elizabeth? Bernie and Elizabeth. Yeah, sorry. I, you know, and I think so. So we've talked about Elizabeth, Bernie, right? Like. Uh, Rebecca, you were featured in uh, Vox this week talking about Bernie on health care and how he really did lay out, uh, make Medicare for all a political reality that even here in Wisconsin has certainly pushed the envelope and made folks on Badger Care and other things be strong and make it seem like it's a layup, of course, to be for the Medicaid money or public option. So more on Bernie. You know, I think I'm really excited that we're talking about Bernie Sanders uh, as a presidential candidate in our ongoing series of profiles. I mean, there's so much to talk about here. He is the only candidate who identifies as a democratic socialist. So as much as I am excited by the policies and and, um, example of Elizabeth Warren, she still is, you know, admittedly pro-capitalist. And I think having a strong front almost a front runner candidate i guess biden would be the front runner talking about socialism is a huge deal and is so exciting and like we are so far behind you know other other countries in that respect and like bernie is bringing us bringing us to where we need to be um you know i think just to rattle off a couple other things that i'm excited about um he is someone who i know on foreign policy i will never have to question whether or not he would take us to war or whether or not he would he would bomb you know black and brown people across the world. And that is something that is so critical and so important to me. Um, another thing that I really love about Senator Sanders, and we've talked about this on the show before, is that he is a movement candidate 
And part of that is he is building movement. And so I, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I was in Iowa. And in Iowa, the folks who are leading Bernie's campaign and his effort to win the caucuses were hired right out of the People's Action Affiliate there, Iowa CCI. These are community organizers who are running his campaign, not national political strategists who have flown in, but local community organizers. And they're doing it by building up the skills and networks of local volunteers in a very distributive way that's going to leave infrastructure after after he goes and after the campaign is over. And to take that on a broader scale, I mean, Senator Sanders' presidential campaign uses his very important and valuable list to turn people out to labor strikes and rallies to spread word about what to do when ICE comes to your door. I mean, these are the kinds of things that I want to see um, as a colleague of mine um, in Ohio said to me, you know, she's like, this is, these are the things that I want to see from my president, and I'm seeing it from him as a candidate. So those are just some of my quick initial thoughts. Um, but yeah, I would love to hear what you guys and think. And it is worth pointing out that for whatever people think about our Wisconsin revolution and our revolutions, there's an effort to keep permanent infrastructure, right? And think about that. So it's an excellent point that you would raise that he's investing in organizers. Yes. And I don't, I know there are a lot of uh, Battleground Wisconsin listeners that like the former president, Barack Obama, but there's a stark contrast between Barack Obama, who claimed to be a committee organizer, but didn't really nothing to build any permanent movement whatsoever. In fact, a lot of the institutions left behind are consultant employment operations, uh, unfortunately. Uh, and so, and, and so that's, a, that's a stark difference. And so if we're going to have a movement, we need candidates who are from, when we talk about elected, uh, you know, finding progressive champions out of our own memberships, which is something Citizen Action is very uh, engaged on and Working Families Party is very engaged on, both here and nationally, uh, that means having someone who is of and from the movement. And that's Bernie. Bernie didn't run for office because he had political ambitions. He ran for office because he wanted to change the world, right? And that's what we need, people who started with, with, with values, with a worldview, with wanting to help other people as, as the first starting thing. And the other thing about Bernie that I like is Bernie, throughout his career, there's a lot of things that happen in our society because leaders at all levels, not just politicians, leaders in all walks of life, just decide that, that, that things as they are are, ha are how they have to be. That's just the way it is, right? And that becomes this powerful kind of conservatism in our society that we just assume, oh, Jim Crow is, well, that's just how it is, right? And slavery was that way. Everything else, every kind of oppression you can imagine. Of course, you know, we're not, of course, we're, marriage is going to be between a man and a woman is conservative, saying we could never change it, right? Bernie started by running as a third-party candidate and getting 1% of the vote multiple times and was persistent and kept going and going. Then he got into Congress eventually as a Democratic Socialist and a U.S. Senate, which everyone said wasn't possible. And then he literally became a legitimate candidate for president who, frankly, could have potentially won that race in 2016 because he simply got, and he didn't, didn't change his views, he didn't trim his views to, to, to what pollsters or consultants told him. He just got, and this is what was so excited about him, he just went and said what he thought. And that's all they really want in leaders. I mean, why can't our political leaders actually tell us the truth and say what they think? Look, one of the, one of the things that I think is a super key to Sanders, and I really hope other Democratic candidates move closer to this, is free college and, and the whole idea of making college, tech schools, everything up to that point what we all know is now like really critical to give people an opportunity, real opportunity in our economy. 
I mean, if we had free high school back when that was what we thought was necessary to get you into the economy and get you a family supporting job. Well, we didn't used to. I just think like at we, some point we decided it was everyone need a high school education. We we have got to realize that like we got to if we want youth and people, younger people, people that are struggling when they look at this economy to really be engaged despite of who the candidate is, whatever candidate it is, we need to move much closer in this area. We need to get a lot further and really unlock opportunity for people because, you know, the economy is marching into a direction where, like, you know, if you don't have that tech school, if you don't have a secondary opportunity for you, you're really locked out of a lot of really important um, economic opportunity. And so I just think this is something that Bernie was really out front on and pushing. And I think it helped galvanize young people behind. And, and it's part of his secret sauce. And I really hope other Democrats move in that direction and understanding that this is a critical thing. And I do believe this over time will be a winning issue as more people start to really realize it's critical for our economy. No, and if you look at polling, you know, the youngest voters, the youngest eligible voters are the most likely to vote for Bernie, you know, and get a little bit closer to my age, that tapers off a bit. But, you know, 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, I mean, you know, we still really like what Bernie has to say. I mean, you said, Robert, that Bernie was running and I would say still is running to change the world. And I would just add to that that he has. Mm. I mean, he's changed the world. And we talk about on the show and in our work how, you know, our responsibility on the left to force an intervention, a political intervention in in the United States, because not only will that change the lives of everyone who lives here for the better, but it will change the world. We are such a huge player economically in terms of empire, in terms of climate. And so that is so necessary. And when you look at what uh, Senator Sanders accomplished just running in 2016, inspiring folks like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and a whole movement of people up and down the ballot, you know, from as local as John Tate the second who's an alderman in Racine who was inspired by Bernie beat an incumbent by four votes just by knocking on every door uh, all the way up to Congress that is incredible when you look at you know you mentioned the article I was quoted in but you look at what he did for the healthcare debate there is no way we would be where we are right now in that debate were it not for Senator Sanders so he is he has already changed so much and it's so inspiring um and really critical that you know we continue to like uplift his message as we go through what you mentioned in the last segment, Robert, as like our political, our our primary on the left, um, and certainly the Working Families Party. You know, we'll we'll have our own little primary, but um, we've got to uplift our candidates as we as we sort through them. So it's an interesting transition, though, because okay, we unlike 2016 where Hillary Clinton cleared the field, and again, to Bernie's credit, he wouldn't be cleared, right? And, when, and you know how many people just said, including on the left, that y Hillary's a machine, you can't beat Hillary, it's a foregone conclusion. Well, he certainly gave her a run in many ways. If the system hadn't been rigged, he might well have won that election. But there are challenges in that he, there are limits so far to what his base is. And so it's a challenge, and he, he has to win this progressive primary that's developed with Elizabeth if he's going to take on Biden. But then can he beat Biden, who is arguably a, uh, a less damaged candidate than Hillary was? Uh, but we'll see. Arguably. We'll see. I raised my eyebrows at Robert. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a question of um, whether you feel, whether we feel he's damaged. It's like in terms of how formidable an opponent he is in a Democratic primary, right? He could be a stronger primary opponent. 
uh, depending on how things go in this race, uh, than, uh, than Hillary was. That's all I'm saying. And then, of course, you have to get beyond that base to win a general election. And as, you, as listeners to Battleground Wisconsin know, I'm not of the theory that running to the center is the way to win elections, but you still need to pull, a rep, pull non-movement progressives. And so these are challenges, and you know they're challenges for Bernie, and I, I, quite frankly, uh, with African-American voters and Latino voters, and that is critical to the whole Democrat coalition. And there's still a lot of polling that shows a lot of African-Americans supporting Biden, and I hope that can be changed by progressives like us, but that's where we are. And I would just say quickly in the last final seconds that uh, he also needs to build a broader coalition. And the one thing I'll say about Bernie, I've said it before on the show, is that he needs to do a much better job talking about race. Yep. And I think if we were to spend a little more time, that's where we would go. But we're going to wrap this up. I, it is obviously not the last time we're going to talk about Bernie. Um, but uh, we got to run. We want to thank our producer, Brian Woldrich, who makes the podcast happen every week. You're listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. Again, we're Citizen Action. You can find us at citizenactionwi.org. We'll see you next week.